This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. Welcome, everyone, into the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Tom Oates with you here again. Of course, as we are recording this in April of 2020, here means physically distant, but hopefully as socially connected as possible. And first, I hope everyone is able to carve out a bit of time for themselves, you know, away from the news, away from adjusting to working with home, because it's not working from home when kids or partners are there with you and and you have to stay in place as well. And and to those of you still venturing out to manage your cases and serve children and families, thank you. Please stay as safe as you can. Now, I want to point folks to the Children's Bureau's website at acf.hhs.gov slash cb for a collection of resources and guidance in addressing COVID-19. You can also head to Child Welfare Information Gateway at childwelfare.gov as well. There you will find guidance and information specific to to children involved in the child welfare system uh, for foster care providers and the child welfare workforce. All right. Well, in today's episode, we are going to continue the conversation around Title IV-E prevention plans as states and jurisdictions are reacting and adapting to the Family First Prevention Services Act. And actually, this conversation has already happened. We're just passing it along to you. You see, in March, the Children's Bureau held a webinar titled Title IV-E Prevention Plan Implementation Updates, and there were only about 500 spaces available, and they filled up quickly. So we wanted to take the recording of the webinar and open it up to the Information Gateway podcast. So this is going to come to you in two parts. This is part one, and it shares the lessons from two jurisdictions who've submitted their uh, prevention plans to and received approval from the Children's Bureau, Washington, D.C., and Utah. They've applied uh, different approaches and components to their respective plans. So you're going to hear from Brenda Donald. She's the director of Washington, D.C.'s Children and Family Services Agency, and Cassette Mills, the federal project administrator for the Utah Division of Children and Family Services. You'll also hear from Dory Snedden from the Children's Bureau, who helps uh, usher the conversation between the two. So uh, this is part one, and it shares some of the experience in developing the prevention plans, both for D.C. and Utah, while Part 2 shares some tips and techniques for jurisdictions in their family-first planning processes and answers some questions and concerns brought up by webinar attendees and colleagues from across child welfare. So we pick up the webinar with Brenda Donald from the District of Columbia, walking the audience through the experiences D.C. had in developing their prevention plan. Knowing that every jurisdiction is different and there are numerous ways to approach the Family First planning process, I just wanted to share with everyone the approach that we took in the District of Columbia. We started with, we established a cross-agency, cross-sector work group, and the charge was clear that we wanted to create, as Jerry has said, a citywide plan to strengthen families and keep children safe. The Family First Prevention Services Act is an opportunity 
not an end game. So we have um, a multi-stage process to develop our plan, um, as people can see. And we started our planning process in June of 2018, then submitted our plan to the Children's Bureau in April of 2019 and received final approval in October of that year. The reason that we were able to move so quickly was that our plan was built on a history of prevention in the District of Columbia and on the heels of our 4E waiver, which also focused on prevention. We had a comprehensive work group, and um, we were able to bring our partners together pretty quickly, again, because we've been working together on a number of these efforts. These are our partners that we work together with every day on multiple cross-sector work. We established three very short-term work groups to, one, give us a lay of the land in our existing upstream prevention programs, Secondly, to reach agreement on the most vulnerable populations that we are all concerned about. And three, to assess the district's portfolio of evidence-based practices and determine what else we needed. So I think this is really important. No one starts from scratch in this work. And every, as I said, every jurisdiction is different, but to take stock of where you are, who your partners are, where you want to go collectively, um, Again, we approach this not as just developing a plan, but as an opportunity to say, here's where we are in the district, here's what our 4E waiver allowed us to do, laying that foundation, and now where we want to go and what are the needs. The, um, the result was that our plan is a very comprehensive plan, and looking at the pie chart, we, our big focus is on um, our upstream prevention, and that really is the vision that we want to meet families where, we, where they are and help them get to where they want to go, and that um, the plan we wanted to create would go beyond um, the narrow boundaries of the Family First um, Prevention Services Act, although we were very careful to align the Family First Act plan portion with the requirements of the act thanks to many partners who kept us focused on that, because of course we wanted to um, take advantage of the opportunities that the Act um, offered in terms of new prevention services and strategies and claiming opportunities, but again in the context of a broader citywide prevention plan. So we started looking at um, with our partners, and here when I say our partners, where our Department of Behavioral Health, which uh, focuses on mental health and substance abuse services, our Department of Health, um, which is the primary funder of home visiting, but also, of course, really focused on the social determinants of health, and um, in the district, very neighborhood focused. Our collaboratives in, in Washington, D.C., we have a network of um, community-based collaboratives that we've been working with for over 20 years. And, um, and then our Department of Human Services, primarily responsible for families who are experiencing homelessness and um, families who receive public benefits. We brought our partners together and said, who are the most vulnerable populations that you work with or that you are concerned with? Who keeps you up at night? And we relied very heavily on data. How many of these groups are repeat clients? Who is most likely to engage or drop out of services? Who hits multiple agencies? 
which is some of the markers we used to come together. And um, no surprise, we were pretty, pretty quickly able to um, identify the most vulnerable populations that we, knew, we know we need to focus on um, deeper and stronger. So our, um, we looked at children who are, from the child welfare standpoint, who are already engaged in preventive services. For us, children who were referred to and receiving in-home services, those who have had a substantiation of abuse and neglect, but um, we made a decision based on risk factors and the opportunity to provide services so they could be safely supported at home. Children who are referred to or receiving, receiving services from the collaboratives I mentioned, um, they may be, have a high risk level but uh, not necessarily are substantiated. And then also children with cases closed following investigations or family assessments who are medium or high risk. And we looked at children with immediate family members in foster care, right? Again, looking at our data, who comes into our system, who is likely to get a repeat report? Children of foster youth, children of youth who recently exited care, and siblings of children in foster care, siblings who may not have been removed. And then children at risk for reentry, those who are exiting the permanency or have recently exited the permanency and needed additional support. Then we cross-reference these populations with the requirements of the Act. We in DC refer to these as our front porch and our front yard family. When we go upstream, that's our front yard, that's our further up the, up the stream or around the corner, but our front porch and front yard families. So we came together again with all of our partner agencies and um, our target populations, which we put into our plan and which were approved by the Children's Bureau, are some that I have mentioned, um, but also we went, we went a little bit deeper and got more specific, so we uh, I talked about the children served through our collaborative for children who have exited foster care. We also have a special focus for children who are born to mothers with positive toxicology screening as a definitely vulnerable population. And um, pregnant or parenting youth who are in foster care, but particularly the children of those youth once they have left us, we know are an important population, and then, as I mentioned, the siblings of foster care. So those are our primary target populations. And in addition to the data, we um, looked at some additional criteria, like the risk level, the risk assessment score. We do have um, risk screening instruments, as most jurisdictions do, whether or not a substantiation was recent, the historic likelihood of entering foster care. And all of these informed our business processes um, to narrow down the population. So once we got our plan approved, um, well, let me back up. Even before we got our plan approved, and actually this is the, the most important thing I think in the planning process is we have the broad stakeholders and the building of the vision and the identification of the target population as part of our big planning process. At the same time, we started planning for implementation. I mean, this is critically important. Can't do the big vision and the lofty plan. We wanted to go October 1, and we did, even though our plan didn't get approved until later in October, but we had to build in 
the um, elements in our system to make sure that we were ready to go. And I think you cannot underattend to this planning. Um, the three most critical areas, um, internal areas of focus were training, information technology, and our finance and revenue. And the, um, the, the circles that you see in the, um, in, in the chart represent internal stakeholders. So they were meeting on a regular basis um, while we were developing the plan. Uh, in terms of training, huge partner, and in D.C. we have our own training academy, which is very fortunate. If others have external partners, then you would want to make sure that you have the training lined up, identified, resourced in ways that you can um, be ready to go day one. We made a decision um, in terms of one of our strategies and one of the um, evidence-based practices that we built in um, as a core component of our plan, and that's motivational interviewing. And for us, it's because, and I think it's everywhere, case management is the foundation to all services for the families we serve. So we decided to include motivational interviewing. This meant getting all social workers, as well as our community partners, trained and certified before October 1, which we did. We're betting on a favorable response from the Children's Bureau that motivational interviewing can be claimed for case management services beyond the clearinghouse's rather narrow, narrow designation. And we have that um, into the Children's Bureau as of last week. But even, even if that doesn't occur, and that's really for claiming purposes, um, we wanted to get everybody trained so that we have a core evidence-based um, case management model, and so that was training. The, um, and we also had to develop um, some new technology in terms of, or had to enhance our SACWA system. And this was um, involved a lot of internal debate because we, like most other jurisdictions, are in stages of development uh, for the new um, CWIS development, and we're making decisions about how much do we build on an old system but there's certain things that you just have to do. So we decided it was an important investment to build in a tracking um, system um, within our current SACWIS. And that's because our model has families moving from the, um, the front porch through the front yard through the front porch and then on out the back door for ongoing services. And we need to track them through their prevention plan and be able to claim. So our community partners are part of this portal. So there's one prevention plan for each family. We hope for them it's relatively seamless. This allows us to track. So we thought that was huge. This was not without cost and um, moving some other priorities where we think it was a, a critical um, requirement. So we look back then to um, our prevention work group, because now we're in implementation, which of course is multi-year and will be refined and we'll be making changes along the way. But we want the, another important element of our plan is evaluation and continuous quality improvement. So we decided that our prevention work group, again, these are our partners from other agencies and from our community partners, and we included, of course, the courts, and our legislature, um, as well as providers, that in terms of transparency and accountability, 
that we want them to continue to have skin in the game. And we have built them in as feedback loops for our CQI process. So I think that is an also an important element as you're developing your plans and you don't do evaluation at the end, you're thinking all along about what is it that we're going to be capturing, not just in terms of data, but what are we looking for in terms of outcomes and where do, how and when do we need to make adjustments. I'll say that um, our prevention work group is very excited about being part of this process and um, we think it's a really, it was a, it was a smart um, decision, not on my part, but on my team's part to do this um, because again, that they're at the table and they're holding us accountable, but they're also part of improving the whole process since this is a citywide prevention plan. And then um, finally, I just wanted to end with a picture of how we're envisioning our CQI process. Um, as I just said, includes our original planning group and um, shows that we're looking at our current state um, in terms of our initial plan, are the target populations being reached, what are the various services, are the programs being done correctly with fidelity. So all of those kind of process measures we, we have to pay attention to. And then do our service providers have the right support, the technology and training and capacity to be successful? Are there improvements then we're going to more to outcomes, improvements in mental health, substance abuse and parenting outcomes for families and with child abuse or neglect averted. And as we started our plan with data, so we will manage our plan with data. And our goals is that our goals are that we have increased engagement, we have high of families, high quality services and service delivery, improve health and well being, and that we reduce child maltreatment. So thank you very much for allowing me to share where we are in the District of Columbia and I look forward to answering questions later on. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Brenda. And I would, uh, we would just encourage you again, if you have questions or comments, to um, put them in your chat box and we can address them at the end of the presentation. Um, so I would like to introduce um, Cosette Mills, um, the Federal Operations Administrator for the Utah Division of Fam Child and Family Services to talk about Utah's approach to their Title IV Prevention Program Plan. Thanks so much. I also appreciate the opportunity to participate in this webinar and to tell you about Utah's 4 experience with our 4 prevention program plan. And one of the things we wanted to do today was contrast the different ways that these approaches can take place in different parts of the country. I'm going to briefly share some context about the approach and planning that we took. And then I'm going to talk a, a little more specifically about, about information specific to preparing the plan document and then was also asked to comment related to working with our regional office. Um, if you want to move slides. Um, when the Family First passed, our leadership in Utah made a firm commitment to move forward with the prevention services provisions at the earliest possible date. We recognize that the 4 prevention plan does not reach the optimal level of prevention by preventing abuse and neglect from occurring in the first place and that it is limited to preventing entry into foster care. But even so, our executive leadership said that despite this limitation, why would we not act on the opportunity to access additional resources 
to support vulnerable children and families at the earliest possible time. So we chose to move forward. Um, with that mindset, we did some analysis of our capacity and we prioritized our resources so that we could um, target that October 1st, 2019 start date for the prevention program, which then also meant we had to meet the QRTP provisions of the Family First Act. Um, we, a deliberate decision was made not to focus on the whole prevention program continuum at that time while we were actually preparing this plan, though we are working with that um, bigger system. It just wasn't part of our 4 prevention plan process. Um, next slide. Uh, we did build our, uh, our 4E prevention program on our 4E waiver homeworks. Our waiver focused on strengthening parents' capacity to safely care for their children while also safely re reducing the need for foster care. And although the 4E prevention program can't fully replace the flexibility of our waiver, we see it as being able to help continue to build capacity to keep children safe in their homes. And because we, um, let's see, um, sorry, we're, I'm not quite to this slide yet, so um, sorry, we're tracking different slides, but um, because we uh, pushed for that early start, we decided initially to target services to the children who are already known as at risk in foster care. So those are children served in, the, in child welfare, but also children, youth in the juvenile justice system. And what we, the approach we took was to have our prevention plan become an opportunity to really build a foundation to implement all the provisions of the Forty Prevention Program, and then the goal is to expand over time. Um, like Washington, D.C. said, we also acknowledge that the Forty Prevention Program was really only just a small uh, slice of the pie of the overall prevention continuum, and we are working on that. Obviously, uh, you know, we, we agree that that's a wonderful vision and we, we would love to put child welfare out of business that no kids are abused and neglected. Um, but in, uh, you know, in the reality of now, we view the development and implementation of the prevention program and that broader prevention continu continuum as really being a marathon that we'll just need to push on over time, that it isn't a sprint. Um, so while we are expanding our, both our 4E program, we will also be working to further expand the full continuum. Thank you. Okay, let's now move to the planning process. Um, and you can go ahead one more slide. Thank you. Um, so the planning process for Utah's 4E prevention plan was directed by an executive steering committee that served as the governing body for implementation. And that executive steering committee was at our department level for the Department of Human Services, under which both child welfare and juvenile justice reside. The actual planning and implementation was managed by an implementation team or a project management team that included representatives from child welfare, juvenile justice, and other offices in our department that support service development and contracts. And then we also had work groups who targeted specific areas. Um, for example, we, um, in prevention, we had a work group for program operations 
that focused on developing the definition of candidates, what changes needed to occur in CWIS, what program policies needed to change, training, regional implementation, and finance. In service development, we explored what more specifically client needs, analyzing options around EBPs, assessing availability with providers, and initiating process, the processes to stand up EBPs. And we really feel like we started without a strong foundation of EBPs in our state. So we're, we're really starting um, from the bottom and building from there. Um, the next slide. So we, we did involve key staff and partners from the start that we knew was critical. So we had to include our program staff, our CWIS, our data, our evaluation, um, CQI staff, finance, procurement, training, um, a wide range variety of our internal process folks. But we also engage stakeholders in a variety of ways, such as our legal partners, our providers, our youth and parents, and other partners who are essential to our system of serving families in our state in the broader child welfare system. And stakeholders were involved in a variety of ways, such as through participating in our work groups. Um, we did some surveys with them. We did some local focus groups um, and other informal meetings and, and informational meetings as well. We also engaged our research partners early in the process. Um, they are assisting us in three primary ways. They're helping us, we are initiated them um, some actual research studies to help us develop, look at some of, um, some of our services to have them become, be designated as evidence-based. So we're looking at um, an in-home parent skills program that we get under our waiver and also kinship navigator services. Also, the, our university partners do conducting some independent systematic reviews for us to help identify evidence-based services pending the um, clearinghouse reviews and also helping us to develop the evaluation strategies for those EBPs that are going to require evaluation, both development of the strategies and then conducting the evaluations for so any services that the clearinghouse has reviewed and determined is um, are promising or supported, and also for services that were rated through the independent systematic review. Um, some of the major planning efforts, um, and the next slide, um, say some of the major planning efforts that we focused on was we're really looking at what was the scope of the project, how were we going to define candidates, what services were we going to include, um, assessing our client needs. One of the ways we did that was through our Utah Families and Children Engagement Tool, which is a CANS-based tool that we use um, that was developed under our waiver to serve both um, in-home clients as well as uh, children in, in foster care. We also looked at our geography. We're a pretty, um, a pretty large state geographically and have um, a lot of uh, we have you know, some major urban areas, but we also have a lot of rural areas and some that would even be considered frontier. And so we did some heat mapping on needs and also looking at what existing services we had to try to identify where we needed to target. We did some assessment of existing evidence-based programs and then looked at with our providers community what evidence-based programs might they be interested in standing up. 
Also, another thing we did um, is to look at what, it was, what does it really take to stand up evidence-based services, and what, what resources are available through developers, what would that cost? And we utilized some of our waiver funds and some other department funds targeted to expanding services to help with, with some of those startup costs. And anticipate now with the passage of the Family First Transition Act that some of that funding will continue to be used to help us with standing up those services. And where possible, we're utilizing existing systems to make implementation more feasible in that short time frame we were targeting. So for example, where we could, we used existing tools to assess safety and risk and also client needs. And we utilize those tools to determine candidacy. Um, and where, we, where possible, we also did automated those determinations through our um, CWIS system. We do anticipate that as we expand to additional services and, and expand beyond our existing child welfare population that we will have need to expand to broader candidate population or to develop new tools and resources to support that. Um, okay, next, if we could go to the plan document. Um, we're going to be, I'm going to just share a few specifics about some of the choices Utah made specifically related to development of the actual 4 prevention program plan document. Um, as we mentioned, jurisdictions have taken a variety of, of approaches in preparing their plans. So I'm just going to share some of the choices Utah made. When we looked at the program instructions for the prevention program, um, PI 1809, um, we, we kind of decided it was a cross between a traditional 4A plan, preprint, and the Child and Family Services Plan, APSR narrative documents. And keeping that in mind helped us as we tried to decide exactly how we were going to approach development of the plan. Um, and also, you know, in contrast to DC, to Washington DC's plan, where they uh, reflected their overall prevention vision, we made a de deliberate decision to limit our plan, keep it modest in scope, and only focus the plan document on the portion of our work that pertains specifically to the Title IV-E prevention program. So we, we chose to have our 4 prevention plan be just that, the plan to operate the 4 prevention program, and not to have this document be where we would represent our overall vision of prevention and the work we're doing for prevention beyond um, this prevention plan. We also, um, obviously, we wanted to meet the federal requirements for the plan, but we also wanted to develop a plan in a way that became a meaningful and useful tool for us. So we created our plan with the intent to start small and to expand over time. For one example of that is we created a broad definition for candidates for foster care, but then we chose initially to implement it more narrowly. Um, and one thing we've tried to be really mindful of in, in uh, as we've planned and as we're thinking about the scope of our services is that while we did create a, a more broad definition of foster care candidates than our current in-home services population under child welfare, we want to be really mindful that we don't put children whose families are struggling on a trajectory for foster care through the 4 prevention program if they wouldn't have been otherwise. Um, thanks. Go to the next slide. So we made some intentional choices in preparing our actual plan document. Um, we, we wanted the plan to be as easy as possible to review and to approve. 
So we chose to follow the program instruction very precisely. Um, for example, the order of the sections of our plan matched the PI specifically, and we used the exact same headings that were in the PI. And then as we wrote the content of the plan, we wanted to ensure that we addressed the specific content that was being asked for in a way that would be clear and understandable. Um, we also didn't include anything in our plan that wasn't specific to the 4E prevention program. And again, this is a contrast to what some other uh, jurisdictions have chosen to do. We didn't include any services that we're providing to um, clients if they weren't covered under 4E. So we didn't specify them in this specific plan. Um, we also, uh, for our initial submission, we decided to limit it only to well-supported services that had been identified by the clearinghouse that wouldn't also require evaluation or the independent systematic review. And part of that goal was so that we could get a foundation of a plan approved and begin to operate the program and the services and make sure everything was working and then be able to submit those more challenging pieces that, that um, we were seeing were more difficult to work through. Um, so in a subsequent amendment, um, we haven't, we have, are um, including services that do require evaluation and also um, it, uh, that require independent systematic review. And then we'll work um, with our federal partners to work through the details of kind of really learning what's approvable in, in those um, areas. Um, we did have one service we submitted for an independent systematic re review that then um, was on Friday we got notice of its rating and so we're amending that amendment to, uh, to indicate that it was a service approved by the clearinghouse. So, th so there is some back and forth and some adjusting because it's, this is very much a, um, you know, a plane in motion that we're kind of uh, modifying as we go. Um, also, we carefully analyzed the preprint document and realized it wasn't necessarily like a traditional preprint. Not everything in the preprint required the citation of um, laws, regulations, or policies. In some sections, we, we referenced the attachments that were required to be submitted. Um, and there were some sections that it was just not applicable. Not applicable. There was no regulatory reference that was required. So that's something that's a little different than your than our traditional preprint documents. Um, we also just tried to be really specific about addressing each of the required elements for the plan. Um, and then there were some sections that we had to modify to address in more detail than we initially understood would be required. So there are some areas that have needed a little more detail than um, was initially evident. So a couple things I would just mention on that is be sure to indicate for the services that are being implemented which specific version of the manual that we're planning that are, is planning to be implemented. And also as you're thinking about outcomes, I know that at least for us initially we were thinking of broad outcomes to the overall implementation of prevention, the prevention services, but um, we needed to step that back and look at what are the outcomes to each specific service that we're proposing. Also, there are a lot of details about each specific service that need to be included, which category of evidence-based service it is, what the target population is, how our, what our plan is for implementing that. 
and how we're going to modif monitor that specific service for fidelity and what our CQI activities will be for that service. Also, again, for those services that require an evaluation strategy, we couldn't submit a general evaluation strategy overall, but needs to be specific to each individual service. And then um, the next slide, um, just a few t t final tips is some things we learned based on our initial submission of the plan. Um, I'll reinforce again the importance of differentiating between our CQI and fidelity activities and the formal evaluation of services. Um, they, they are different functions and, and each needs to be clearly articulated. Again, and I mentioned earlier that they do need to be specific for each service and not just a general overall CQI or evaluation plan. Um, where possible for the CQI processes and the fidelity processes, we we looked at whether or not the developers of the services had already um, created tools and resources. And where we could, we opted to use those. Where those were develop available, we are working with our evaluators to help us as part of the evaluation process to devel develop some specific fidelity monitoring tools that we'll be able to implement uh, on an ongoing basis. Um, also, on the, if you're requesting a waiver for evaluation for a service that was rated as well supported by the Title IV Prevention Services Clearinghouse, it's really important that, to analyze and articulate why it's compelling um, not to conduct a formal eva evaluation of that service. It was helpful for us to stop and really think about our services and our population and what other evidence is out there of the um, effectiveness of the service to be able to articulate that. We did find that a variety of clearinghouses and developer sites could help, was able to help us as we did that analysis and then also helped us in writing that justification. And again, for those programs that do require the evaluation strategy, we need, we need to provide a detailed evaluation for each program. Um, the Children's Bureau tip sheet provided in August of 2019 was an excellent resource. Um, it's that we've, our, uh, we worked with our evaluators to look at that tip sheet as well as what the, the processes were for clearinghouse review as we thought about what it means to have an evaluation that um, will be effective for those services. The other thing that we've tried to do with our services is to ask the question, what are we really trying to accomplish with evaluation? Are we needing to try to add to the body of evidence to maybe we want to see if we can help support increasing the rating of a specific service? Or is it is the purpose for a given service maybe just to look at what specifically is the benefit to our own clients and our own process evaluation? I think the answer to that question helps to guide the research design and the rigor and the cost of the evaluation. Um, we, we haven't yet worked through the details with um, our federal partners in terms of evaluation, so <clears throat> anticipate that we have more to learn in that area, but those are things that have helped us in preparing that part of our plan. And then this, our, the last point we were asked to talk about was just sharing something about our, our interactions with our federal regional office through this process. Um, we did communicate very frequently with our regional office, and they were extremely helpful. 
we did submit many, many questions to them, and they were very helpful in getting us responses to those questions in all aspects of the Family First implementation. We also discussed with them the process for submission and review, and they gave us information about the timelines, kept us informed so we knew where our documents were in the process. Um, and then um, when we had items that needed further attention, we, they worked with us to identify how we needed to address those items and, and make modifications to our plan submission. And then um, they've also helped us with next steps um, for example, what steps to take when we needed to submit our first plan amendment, where that wasn't specifically addressed in the program instructions. Um, so we, we, for us, our federal regional partners have been um, really un important to the process and have been tremendously helpful. So now in part two, which is coming up, the webinar provided a series of tips to help answer questions surrounding topics and approaches brought up to the Children's Bureau by various jurisdictions. You'll also hear Brenda Donald and Cassette Mills answer some of the questions that webinar participants ask. So that is part two. Now, again, some of my takeaways uh, here in part one were the different approaches that D.C. and Utah took in their plans. Clearly, the flexibility and partnership that jurisdictions take really depend on their current situations, their specific needs, and the programs and services that they see as useful. Hey, if you go to the webpage for this episode, and all our episode webpages are on childwelfare.gov, uh, we're going to send you links to both D.C. and Utah's information, along with the Children's Bureau's Title IV-E Prevention Program website. Uh, we'll have the link to the specific program instruction, that's PI-1809. Uh, you'll also get links to the Title IV-E Prevention Services Clearinghouse and the Children's Bureau's page with the status of submitted independent systematic reviews to claim for trans transitional payments. So, a reminder to check out all of our episodes. You can subscribe to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. So, last month's episode, and we'll want to remind you to check that one out, that focuses on an implementation guide for Family First, a living document to help answer jurisdictions' questions and provide some guidance developed by a series of organizations led by the Children's Defense Fund. Really informative episode there. But we encourage you to stick around for more episodes focused on Family First and other perspectives and insight to help you support the children, youth, and families that you serve. Please stay safe, take care of yourself and your loved ones, and thanks for listening to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. I'm Tom Oates. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.